tonight we're getting started. And we've been in a series of Daniel, the life of Daniel. And we have moved to the point of chapter 4. And I can't quit thinking about it. I can't quit writing on it. I spent the whole day going over it all over again. And I really appreciate y'all's contributions. Let's see what the Lord has for us in this. Here we go. All right, so time has passed from all the events that happened in chapters 1 through 3. And there's been a time gap. So we're starting in Daniel chapter 4. And I think it's interesting when you talk about the king of Babylon. Because in Isaiah 14, which we relegate to being a picture of Satan, Satan himself was connected to the king of Babylon. And then, the king of Babylon, you'll find it all through scripture. Like they talk about the king of Babylon. And in Revelation, it has a lot to say about the king of Babylon. So what we're talking on tonight fits in to Revelation. The king of Babylon plays a role into what Revelation is trying to tell you. Plus the fact that Daniel is the Old Testament version of what Revelation gives us. That there's a spinoff on that. So the king of Babylon who destroyed the world and demolished the great cities would be Nebuchadnezzar II, this guy. And he lived from 605 years before Christ to 562. Uh, that was the time I think he was conquering. So Nebuchadnezzar conquered Karmish, Karshemish, Egypt, Assyria, Phoenicia, Judea, Sicily, and he put the king of Judea into prison for 37 years. And this is the guy that we're talking about tonight. Some propose that the king of Babylon referred to in Isaiah 14 is actually Israel's eschatological enemy. Who might that be? If we're saying Israel has a in days enemy, a final enemy, who's Israel's final enemy? True, the Antichrist. So we got it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so it's with this understanding that we're talking about exactly where the king of Babylon has risen to at this moment. So near the end of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar has another strange dream. There's a, something that happened good on this one. He could remember this one. <laughs> the last time he had a dream, he got real upset because he couldn't remember what he dreamed. But on this particular dream, you don't have the problem of saying, you tell me what I dreamed, or off with your heads. He actually could remember what he had dreamed. So in Daniel 4, we're studying the last four chapters, which tells us how God worked through Daniel, his three friends, to impact Nebuchadnezzar in the last three chapters. And the king who not only defeated Jerusalem and Judea, but think about this, he carried these guys as slaves into Babylonia. So this is the guy that you're dealing with. We've been studying how God's working through these three friends and Daniel in the last three chapters. This now is the fourth to impact this guy. The very guy that was ruthless, carried him into slavery, knocked their city down. So Nebuchadnezzar addresses all people of every language. At the beginning of this chapter, it tells you this is who this is written to. All people of every language. In verse 1, it tells us that this is a worldwide address. This isn't just written to, let's say, Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible. This isn't just written to believers. It's written to 
everyone. So keep that in mind because there's a message in what he says tonight. Secondly, the thing that it says is, its signs and wonders were made known to me. Everybody who goes, oh, I wish you'd teach you a class in signs and wonders. I wish you'd tell us about signs and wonders in the Bible. It's unique here to see one of the first mentions of signs and wonders as a concept is by Nebuchadnezzar. That he's saying signs and wonders were made known in my life. You know, there's some people that, quote, are believers, and they never experience signs and wonders. Like they go, nothing ever special happened in my life. I can't remember anything supernatural. I never saw God do anything. But Nebuchadnezzar says, signs and wonders were made known to my life. Okay, in verses 1 through 18, this is written in first person. Nebuchadnezzar himself is speaking in his voice to you in the first 18 verses. Then in verses 19 through 33, it's speaking in second person. And it said you and the king. It refers to the third person. In the second person, it's you. In the third person, it's the king. That's very important. You'll figure out why in a few minutes. In verses 34 through 37, it revolves right back to first person again. So you're seeing that you're addressed, and you're seeing that this guy, the king of Babylon, this famous guy out of history, is going to speak to you tonight. He has something to tell you. He says he saw signs and wonders, and this is his statement, his message to you. I want you to take it that way. Once again, God revealed future events to a pagan king in the middle of the night. It's a night stream, and he makes him some promises. It's unusual to think, as many dreams as everybody has during this time, that literally that God does speak to people in dreams. This is part of the way that God gets it across and not only speaks to him, but tells him what's going to come about in the future and makes him accountable to what he hears or what he dreams at night. And this is how this begins in the way God dealt with him was in the area of dreams. Like that's a large piece of how the Lord was speaking to him. Verse 4, it starts out telling you something very important that you need to notice. You can't miss this part. Verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar informs us of something. This dream came to him not during a hard time of his life. The dream didn't come to Nebuchadnezzar when everything was going wrong. That's usually when we're seeking guidance. That's usually when we want to know what's wrong. This dream came to him in the ease and the luxury of the earthly kingdom when in his own words he was at ease he was flourishing everything was going well it was during this time of his life that God speaks to him in a dream so I'm going to ask you a question before we begin for what evil was Nebuchadnezzar being spoken to like what great evil had Nebuchadnezzar done that during a very good time in his life that God is trying to reach inside of him and speak to him. Was he successful? Was it he was powerful? Was it his wealth? Because this dream, because he was evil? Was this the reason that we had the dream? Because he was evil? Because he was a successful person? Powerful? He was wealthy? Is that why God's mad at him? Is that why he comes to him? 
So what was Nebuchadnezzar's problem that he was suddenly having his finger being put on him by God and he's on God's radar and it will soon indicate to Nebuchadnezzar why he's in trouble? I want you to think of it in terms of your life of what would make God stop everything Nebuchadnezzar was doing and saying, enough. So it's at this moment that King Nebuchadnezzar had a second dream. And you would think that he had learned from the first dream at least who could interpret the kind of dreams that he had. You would think he would have remembered Daniel. Instead of giving orders to bring into his presence all the wise men of Babylon. So again, the wise men and the astrologers all come in and their task is to interpret the dream. And they can't do it. In verse 8, at last, or let's just say as a last resort, Daniel speaks before the king. You know, I get tickled at this. No matter how many times God uses you in someone's life, a lot of times they'll still put you in the last resort category. Like, I don't care how many times you've spoken into them. I don't care how many times you've been right on, dead on, when nobody else, they'll still call you last. And this is exactly what the point that it's making here. He's already known that Daniel can do this. He has a relationship with Daniel. But it's hilarious to think here, well, okay, Let's bring in Daniel. And we're not told that the king summoned Daniel specifically or if he was just brought in with the whole group, but he is the last one to speak. When everyone else couldn't do it, it said he spoke. And he wants to, let's think, perhaps give the wise men of Babylon a chance to interpret it. Like, maybe let's let my guys go first. Let's let my men, let's let these guys give me one because if they give me one, it'll be more to my liking. So... This is where he begins. But now he's confident that Daniel would interpret his dream. But I want you to notice what he does. In this, he refers to Daniel. Don't miss this. He refers to him by his Babylonian name. Belshazzar. Rather than his Hebrew name. So he refers to him by his pagan name, not his Hebrew name. And there's no mention at all where Nebuchadnezzar relates it to Daniel's God. But he says it even worse than that. Not only does he not bring up that he's been wowed before in chapter 2 by Daniel's God. Listen to how he said it. But only by the spirit of the holy gods. Plural. (laughs) You know the type. And they're very open to all the religions. Everyone's comfortable here. You know, he has in him the spirit of the holy gods. You know, we've laughed about this because we're seeing this more and more. We call it a new age spirit, but it's an old age spirit. And just because we're seeing it in our legislators when they're calling on God and now they no longer refer to our God, they're saying the gods (laughs) and the deities. At least they're not making them male or female here. (laughs) So they're referring to it and it's the same spirit. Now what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe his ego has swollen, but he has forgotten a lot. There's a lot he's not remembering. He's pushed it out of his mind. So in verses 8 through 18, we're going to study the dream itself. Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a great tree, and he dreams of watchers. What are watchers? Very unique. But of course, when you're a heathen king and you're trying to understand something you're seeing, 
That's the word that he described. Very simple dream. Like when you look at it, there's nothing very complex about this dream. And I would ask you, if you had heard this dream, would you believe it meant all of this that's going to happen? If you'd heard this dream, would you think, you mean that's telling us all of this here? This is what's going to take place? Kind of bothers you to think, oh my goodness, you could have a very, very simple dream. And it could completely rock the rest of your life. It could be telling you, you're going to come off the rails. The dream doesn't seem that complex to me. So in 8 through 12, there's a distinction because this is the first part of the dream. In this part, the king begins to tell Daniel that in verses 10 through 12, the good news of his dream, the portion. This is the part that did not trouble him. In fact, if he had just gotten this piece of the dream, he might not have called anyone in. But this is the way that the dream began. There was a great and there was a mighty tree, and it reached high into the sky. It was prominent for the entire world to see. This guy definitely has a global impact. It's a great, mighty tree. He's on all social media. He's on the, all the networks. This guy is high, and his fame goes to the ends of the earth, and everybody's talking about him. Its boughs and its fruit provided both food and shelter for the birds and the beast of the earth. So this tree had a purpose. It had a reason to be there. It grew high and it was for the birds and the beast to find shelter and food. I want to ask you something. Who does this tree represent? Like when I dream of a tree, I don't look in a dream and think, oh, that's me. But it's unique here. The person this tree represented was who? Well, let's keep moving. In 12 through 18 is the second part of the dream. And the king was worked up over this second act in the dream. He, let's just say, feels it coming. There's an angelic watcher that enters the scene calling for the tree to be cut down. So there's this great tree, and you would say, wow, this fabulous tree, and it's going to be cut down. Its branches were to be removed, and its fruit scattered all over the place. A metal band was to be put around the stump, prohibiting its growth. The tree was now to become a creature living in the open field among the beasts and having the mind of a beast. Daniel, at this point, when he hears the dream, it troubles him. He realized it has changed from good news to bad news. Well, you can tell Nebuchadnezzar is very much in a good news part of his life. Things have worked really well for him. People who have found success, they're like, it seems like they can't do anything wrong. It's just they are very successful. The whole world admires them. And this is where he was. But the problem with this is there's a biblical principle that takes place. Something that you see all through the Bible. So in verse 17, it says, The judgment is by the decree of the angelic watchers. So these watchers play a role in his life to speak in or to decree something. It's a decision is the command of the holy ones. 
in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. So the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. He bestows it on the lowliest of men. Nevertheless, even though the king had this dream, even though Daniel has the understanding of it, the king was more intent on finding out the meaning of the dream than Daniel was of telling him. And you see a very odd thing take place between these two men. In verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Can you imagine his mind is going, it's firing. And his thoughts are going crazier and crazier. And he's thinking, do I have to say this? The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let this dream or its interpretation alarm you. You know, what a scene here. When you have the job of prophet, your job is to speak into power. Many people consider themselves prophets, but they don't have the courage to speak into someone who's powerful. Oh, they'll tell the guy, they'll speak what the guy wants to hear. They're the yes men, but not Daniel. He finds himself having to speak into the man against what the guy's doing. Daniel has the role of a prophet where they literally stand as a guard, as a watcher, as the one who gives the king guidance that no one else will give. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament and the prophets now have a job that no one else would care to do. Everybody likes their position. Everybody likes their prominence. But very few people have the guts, the strength, the steel inside of them to speak what people do not want to hear. And Nebuchadnezzar is very shocked by the emotional state that this puts Daniel in. I imagine as he's looking at the guy thinking, you know, I stole your youth from you. You know, whatever happened to Daniel's parents, you know, his family. I mean, he's been taken as a slave. And he's thinking, isn't this odd, his reaction to this? So he consoles Daniel, and he tells him, don't be distressed by this dream. Don't let this dream bother you. Go ahead and tell me. The interpretation or the interpreting of this dream for Daniel is so personal to him. You would wonder, why is this getting to Daniel? Why is it so personal? He's greatly perplexed and his thoughts alarmed him and terrified him. You know, he has in him what true shepherds have. Shepherds really care for the sheep. They're compassionate. Notice who's shepherding who. Notice how Daniel looks at this. That's how you can know if someone really has the right heart. They may have the guts to tell you what you don't want to hear, but inside of them, it's all they can do to make themselves do it. And Nebuchadnezzar sees his reluctance, and he begs him to tell him. You know, have you ever had this happen to you, where you're more concerned for the person than they are for themselves? Like you can see what's going to happen to them. You see where this is going. I remember the guy who told me, he goes, boy, you're getting emotional on me. Boy, you're getting upset with what I said. He blasphemed and mocked God. Boy, he said, you're upset. 
But why? He moved my spirit within me because I could tell where his life was headed. I knew I had a chance to help him get it right with God. And this is what we have here. You find yourself more concerned for them than they are for themselves. In truth, it seems that Daniel was more deeply affected by the dream than the king himself. Daniel, a slave, prefaces interpretation with a sincere expression of his compassion for the king. You want to say this to yourself? This slave was a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar. Slaves. Having a slave who cares for the person who enslaved him. He had the heart of God. He had his priorities where he was more intent on what God was saying than what he was thinking about what had happened to him. Notice these next words that he uses with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, King, I wish that the words that I'm about to speak to you were in regards to your enemies and not to the king himself. I wish that this dream applied to your enemies and not to you. Wow. He really couched what he's about to say. What a way to speak. What a way to feel. I would tell you that Daniel came with his heart in his hands and he was telling this king, I wish I could tell you this applied to someone else, but I say it with the utmost respect or maybe not respect with compassion for you as I possibly can that this is to you. Think of this. Think what this slave is saying to this king. I'm speaking right now to the man who ripped the gates off of my city. I'm speaking to the man who ripped the gates off of Jerusalem, who broke through the walls, who tore down the temple, and who dragged me and my friends back to slavery and has taken my entire life for his service. To you, King, I speak with compassion. That's who's speaking between the two of them. You ask me how God feels about slavery? God's concern is what's going on inside in your heart. Daniel, a man forced by Nebuchadnezzar's demand, you work for me now. <laughs> Have you ever felt that call? You work for me now. <laughs> he was pressed into service. He's truly committed to serve his king and contribute to his well-being. This is Daniel. And this is why he was good at his job. And this is why God could trust him to tell us things we need to know in the hour that we live. So verse 22, Daniel answers that question that I've asked. It is you, O king. The man who is technically has made himself in charge of the whole world. In many ways, this king was the king of the whole natural world. And Daniel was telling the king the easy way. Let me show you. The king was determined to do it the hard way. You see what's going to happen next. Nebuchadnezzar was not only going to lose power to rule, but he was going to lose his sanity. Robbie asked me, what did you speak on? I said, there's a joke. It's called when Nebuchadnezzar was put out to pasture. <laughs> he was literally put out to pasture. 
He's going to be transformed. Boy, when God says, you're going to be transformed, transformed. Let your mind be transformed and let you have this mind that's in you that's in Christ. Transform. Guess what Nebuchadnezzar's mind's going to be transformed into? An animal. This is transformation of the mind for sure. For seven years. I mean, seven days would be enough. Even his thinking was going to be beast-like. He was going to sit in the field a while and contemplate his life choices. <laughs> Daniel is foreseeing the king is going to have a great meltdown. Have you ever had a meltdown? This is a meltdown, my friend. <laughs> and he tells him how long. It will last you seven years. The phrase seven, which states the duration, occurs four times, he tells Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years, seven years, seven years, seven years. In a very short dream, he repeats himself. And it's always the same. Let me give it to you in the Hebrew. It's a very difficult phrase. They work on this phrase. Till seven times passes over thee. That's how it's actually stated. Till seven times passes over you. So, where do we go from here? Well, the first challenge that Daniel has to do is having to tell a king, you need to repent. How many people in your lifetime have you told them, you need to repent? Let me tell you, it's no small feat or small matter to tell a king, you need to repent. Let me call this what we term it. This is called discipling successful people. That's why it's not done. You think it's easy, but I dare say that you've never taken anyone that was extremely successful and told them, you're going to have to repent. But the next challenge is theological. And what John walked away from this story, our John here, is something that I don't want you to forget. You possibly could think of repenting when things are going bad, but you never think of repenting when things are going good. I want to make sure you have that written down. You might think that, oh, I should repent because this horrible thing has happened to me. Things are going really bad in my life. But never do people think of repenting when things are going good. And it makes a point of saying this. He was flourishing. He was at ease. Things were good. And that's when the message of repentance came into his life. The rich and powerful are slower to get consequences because they have so many options. They can keep those problems away from them. Literally, little can be done to them because they always have some little surprise they can do to protect themselves. Believe me, they have learned to use their money to their advantage. Believe me, they have learned to use their position. And most of them have a very sharp tongue. This is Nebuchadnezzar here. He's rich, he's powerful, and I doubt that he has had many consequences in his life. And Daniel is looking at a man like that to go into what he says is the interpretation. Verse 24, he says to him, this is the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, I will tell you your dream. So the first part depicts things as they were now. 
The increasing height and beauty of the tree depicts the rapidly increasing majesty and splendor of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It couldn't be better. The height, it's the beauty. It's just like everything going better. You know, most people don't give you your coaching when you're successful. Most people don't tell your coaching when everything's going good. Nebuchadnezzar judged himself and his kingdom according to the standard of greatness, power, and glory. You know who Nebuchadnezzar was? He was his own standard. He was a standard unto himself. And by this standard, the king had done real well. Who's your standard? What is your idea of success? When do you know I've made it? How do you know when your ships come in? What does that look like in your life? Nebuchadnezzar, he had realized his own standard for success. He had done well. But suddenly, someone greater than Nebuchadnezzar was giving him a standard. Because notice something that he tells him that's very simple. It's funny how God will take something in nature to explain things to us. The tree was not created primarily for its own greatness or glory. The tree wasn't planted there for everybody to admire the tree. The tree was there to provide shelter and food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, providing for and protecting earthly animals. In other words, you don't get the reason why you're on earth. You don't get the reason why you're here, why you have this position. You don't get the reason for your, the purpose for your life. Nebuchadnezzar's standard of success had completely missed even the understanding of what a tree was made for. He wasn't even giving. What a tree was made for, he wasn't even doing what a tree would do. How many people are going to hit Judgment Day and find out that what they have produced for the kingdom doesn't even measure what a tree would give? What would happen to you if everything that you've done for the kingdom doesn't even add up to what my plum tree gives? Never one day does your back look broken with the fruit you're providing. It shows that trees are made for fruit. It shows they're made for shelter. It shows someone's supposed to be nesting under you. It shows that when you rise to power, that God has put you there for a purpose. Nebuchadnezzar's standard did not even add up to what God's standard was for something that wasn't even as high up on the development scale as an animal. Even a plant achieved more than a man. Now, I think it's going to be unusual because it seems like that God uses... Let me say this. In our consequences, we receive back exactly what we've sowed. So, a plant is going to be used in Nebuchadnezzar's consequences. An animal is going to be used in Nebuchadnezzar's consequences. Notice how that factors in. If you don't give it, then it's going to be required of you. It's the worm of Jonah. Like, Jonah hadn't done anything to deserve the protection the worm gave. So they can be put on and be removed. This is what you're going to say here. That it's actually used, it's figured into your punishment. I actually think, from my study of the Bible, that you set your own standard of judgment. 
Like right now, you're picking how your standard's going to be. What you require is what will be required back of you. That it's your own standard. So Nebuchadnezzar had set his standard of what he thought was success. But in setting your standard, you're setting your standard for judgment. And so this is what's going to happen here. From the silence of the text, we can only make guesses at this point. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but the interpretation has been given. The next thing we see is that it doesn't quite read the way it did in the chapter 2. The king only politely thanked Daniel at best, choosing, we're guessing, not to take this interpretation seriously. The dream itself seemed to have no great impact on the king's attitude or actions or or he maybe he did repent a little bit because of what's going to happen next in the key verse. Maybe it got him through the moment. Have you ever had a time in your life where you repented enough to just get to the next step where you were going? Maybe that's what he did. Maybe he did nothing. We can't tell. There's no understanding here. It doesn't say what took place. So in verse 27, you need to circle it because it's your key verse. Daniel goes beyond the meaning of the dream. Daniel goes beyond the dream itself and the meaning to urge the king to get things right with God. So what Daniel does is the dream doesn't say this. The interpretation doesn't say this. But Daniel says, I say this. Get it right with God. For perhaps the Lord will show mercy. Daniel begins to exhort. He begins to preach. He tells the king, break away from your sins. Do righteousness. Cease to do your iniquities and show mercy to the poor. In other words, Daniel's sermon, he gathers up what the king's doing wrong. He's trying to let the king know this is what God's putting his finger on. This lets us know exactly what's going on in the king's life. It's here that the king's sins are more specifically exposed. He's exposing something to the king that's the root of his sin, and that's his arrogance, his pride. The fruit of his sin seems to be self-promotion and giving yourself credit. It's important that we see that Daniel's linking pride as the reason we treat people the way we do. People that have pride do not treat people well. You find a very prideful person, you will not find a person that will take care of you. That will do you a favor. That's why it said, don't just expect that someone that has an abundance will give you anything. Because if there's pride with it, you will walk away with nothing. It's just put a knife to your throat. If a person has pride, they will not treat people well. If you have pride, even religious pride, you're not treating people well in your life. If you have intellectual pride, you're not treating people well. Any type of pride causes you to not treat people well in your life. And you know my definition of pride. Pride is a deep form of overcompensating in your life for insecurity. If you're deeply insecure, you do not treat people well. You're very self-focused. If you're deeply insecure about something in your life, you're not treating people well. So the king's pride has resulted in oppression of the poor. He who thought of himself better than other men 
now would become less than a man. He would become an ox. This guy walked around thinking, I am the man among all men on earth. I am the man that has set the standard in history. I not only set the standard of what no king before me has done, I'm setting the standard for what all kings in front of me, all kings in the future, all people in the future will know what I do. He has therefore said, I am a man among all men in success. And guess what? He's hit a biblical principle. That principle that we find so often that it says that if the mere mention of pride in the Bible, you don't even have to state it because if there's pride, there'll be a fall. They said that that is a biblical law so strong in your Bible that even the mention of pride, everybody biblically, theologically thinks, then they're going to fall. That Daniel knew it. That's why theologically he could be in a good place in his life, but because there was pride, there was a failure in his future. There was something that was going to cause him to fall down from where his status was. He would fall so low, he wouldn't be the lowest of men. He would be an ox. And not a good looking one. Pride ignores and denies the truth that prosperity comes from God as a gift of his grace and not as a reward of our greatness. The self-made man, the one who thinks I've done this, if we are successful, we think it's us. Not because he had prosperity and wealth is why he got in trouble. Because he didn't provide or shelter with his prosperity and wealth. He gave it as a reward. I am so great. I earned this. This is my reward. You know, it's a little bit of a dangerous thing when you come in after a hard day and you go, I need to reward myself for a hard day. I need to do this to comfort myself. When you're at ease and you comfort yourself, you're rewarding yourself for what God has done in your life. I'm not saying don't take rest. I'm saying don't let your heart go there where you think your success is built on what you have done. It is not your reward for your greatness. You know, it's unusual to think of how this interchanges here. I was really kind of amazed because I hadn't thought about the oppression of the poor being linked to his pride. When things go wrong for others, we think they deserve it. When things go right for us, we think we deserve it. <laughs> when things go wrong for us, we think we're in spiritual warfare. <laughs> when they go wrong for others, we think, yeah, they deserve it. Watch this. Pride interprets other people's poverty as proof of their inferiority and the penalty of how inferior they are. Pride interprets any place that someone else is a loser of thinking, they just don't have it together, like me, but they don't say the like me. Sooner or later, pride justifies the use of power to start boasting, to be critical, to become the expert, the self-appointed expert, the intellectual pride, the spiritual pride, the pride of what you built, what you've done, the pride of your job, the pride of your position. That's why you reward yourself. That's where you comfort yourself. You're not comforting yourself in the grace of God. 
or the strength of the Lord. You're comforting yourself in your pride. Pride tells us to use our power because the needy, those in poverty, deserve to be taken advantage of. Pride gets tangled up. And it gets tangled between how great I am and how forsaken of God you are. (laughs) And that's why the oppression of the poor was dealt with in his riches. Because he didn't even get it together as much as a tree does. A tree was smarter than the man. The tree, it was not created primarily for its own greatness or glory. But it was created to provide the shelter. There's one thing that could cure the king at this moment. And that would be to surrender to God. And it would result in justice and mercy. This, my friend, is what gets Neb a visit from God. In the night hours, God comes to him and decrees. Daniel tries to help him with what repentance will look like. He goes away from the actual words of the dream to try to help him. In verse 27, it's the verse that I said to mark it as the key. The Daniel begs the king, repent, renounce your sins. Perhaps something could be changed. I know the Lord. I know his compassion. If you'll repent, perhaps we can get rid of this. Verse 27, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. You could just keep going the way you are if you will just do this. It could have been taken care of right here and now. How many things in your life you could take care of right now, tonight, if you got them right with God? If you repented and you said, the pride in my life stops here. The insecurity of me not doing what you want, God, tonight, it stops. The looking at myself as my own standard and counting my success as being by my own. If tonight you got it right with God, Daniel's telling you, perhaps your prosperity, your success could be extended. Right now, I wonder how many things could be taken care of. You know, note the difference in the outcome for Daniel and what's happened in Daniel 2. In chapter 2, when Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar his dream and its interpretation, the king honored and gave Daniel a position. In chapter 4, we find no expression of gratitude from the king, nor any word on Daniel. It's just silent on that. I was going to say, let me put it in other words. When you talk on repentance, no one gives you an offering. It's not popular, but it is the one thing that has the power to turn around pride. Every arrogant streak, every ignorant thing inside of you can be turned around by repentance. And that's why you see no gratitude. The great tree is Nebuchadnezzar, but he's about to turn from a tree to a beast and his mind is going to go into a place that very few people have even ever seen anyone do this like this is in medical books there are cases but rare cases of something like this that can happen to someone i mean his mind is about to lose its complete grip on reality 
I want you to think about something. And this is something I was thinking about when I noticed the specific thing that the Bible notes about his insanity. Like, I mean, you could write chapters on how insane he was for seven years and all the crazy stuff he did. We've had some people on the mission field that have lost sanity. We could write books. But it gives you one verse. And I think the verse shows how it's linked to pride. Notice this. It's an odd note. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Of all things for it to say, to tell you that the body of Nebuchadnezzar, when he turned into a beast, would be covered in wet, wet dew, rain. Do you know what it's telling you? He doesn't have any shelter. It's telling you he has nowhere uh, to park his car. <laughs> it's telling you that he doesn't have anything that's taking care of him, that's even covering him. Don't you think it's unusual? That the Bible tells you that a tree covers beast, a plant covers beast, but a man did not. So therefore, when he turns into a beast, notice this, it means, let me give you the interpretation of your body will be covered with dew. The very thing you didn't do for others, now you're going to lose yourself. The one thing you don't want to lose, you don't want to lose this for eternity. The best thing you can have happen to you is that you get judged on earth. The worst thing are people that never receive judgment. They never get anybody have their finger put on them. That's why it's a blessing. It's mercy for someone to do this to your life and speak into it. It means, understand when someone doesn't shelter you, when someone never does it, you wake up drenched with dew when nobody takes care of you. There's people out there just receiving the elements Whatever's going to come at them, whatever nature throws at them, whatever the night hours give to them, whatever happens to them, no matter how cold or how hot, there is no shelter that comes to take place. And we serve a sheltering God, for He gives us the fire by night and the cloud by day. The Holy Spirit's the comforter. He likes to shelter us. But when we take His shelter and fail to give it to someone else, we receive a hairy body <laughs> that has no shelter but the dew that falls on your own shaggy, beast-like self. Nebuchadnezzar is now going to look like what his spirit has looked like. It's the poverty. The man may look proud and haughty and arrogant. He may look good, but he's suddenly on the outside going to look like what he did on the inside to me this is so unusual to think that he doesn't give birds a place to rest or animals a place to shelter so he turns into a beast and now he's going to notice the one other little piece it gives you he's going to eat plants I think that's very odd he's going to eat grass He's going to eat whatever a cow would on a, on a day. You don't give them fruit, guess what you get to eat. You don't give them shelter, guess what's going to happen to you. This is what I've seen consistently through Scripture, that your life on earth is setting your standard in judgment. 
every standard, every sharp word you say at another, well, they should, they ought to, they should, every single one of them, it says there's not going to be one idle word that won't be used against you on Judgment Day. Mm. And you see this taking place, and we're panicked at thinking, this would be a horrible thing to have happen. No, this thing is very merciful to happen on earth. What you don't want to have it happen is through eternity. You don't want to be the rich man who stepped over Lazarus every day while he wore his purple. And he said, look at that stupid guy by my gate. If he was smart as me, he would be in the stock market and he wouldn't be begging. And it steps over him and it says, notice Jesus' language on this. It said the guy was so nasty. I mean, if you're going to paint a picture of nasty, Jesus paints the ultimate picture of nasty here. He goes, he was so nasty with sores that the dogs licked his sores. But in heaven, the order switches, and the rich man's asking that guy for a drink. And then it's not a drink, it's a drip. Just give me one drip. Priorities. Standards. America. How have we done with our prosperity? If you don't see them, you're in trouble. That's called a goat. When were they sick? I didn't see anybody sick. When were they in trouble? I didn't get it when they were in prison. I wasn't aware of this. A chance to repent, but few do. So, course of action, which might avert or delay the adversity which the king has warned. Verse 28 sums it. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Verse 29. It's hilarious. The first three words. Twelve months later. Does that not sound like a subcaption of a movie? Twelve months later. <laughs> written at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> That tells you what's going to happen next. It says Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said these words to himself. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar was still taking all the credit for his remarkable achievements 12 months later. He must have missed the message. He was comforting Daniel because poor pathetic Daniel, he's all upset about this. These spiritual people, well, they enjoy life. I give them the opportunity and they just don't seem to get it. They're not successful. I want you to gaze with me for a minute from the roof of Nebuchadnezzar's house. I want you to see what he saw. Nine-tenths of Babylon itself and nineteen-twentieths of all the ruins that they have uncovered in almost countless profusion that cover the land, all the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon are composed of bricks that are stamped with his name. Every single brick they have found has his name on it, stamped. It reminds me of Cullen when he was a little bitty kid. They took his picture and they said, Cullen, you're going to be on the front of Mom's new Psalm 91 book. 
Oh, he was happy. He gave his best little boyish smile, you know how they do. Well, the funny thing was when they got the first box of books, they cut them open, they dumped them out. And Cullen started looking through them and he started looking book after book after book and he goes, Nana, I'm on every book. He goes, Nana, I'm famous. Because <laughs> he saw all the books piled up in all the boxes and he knew his picture was on every book. Nebuchadnezzar was a little boy with a lot of fame. His name was on every brick. Who built this place? Nebuchadnezzar built it. He was a little boy Cullen, so happy with himself. It appears that he built or restored almost every city and temple in the whole country. The Ishtar Gate, the main gate, had eight multiple gates to it. And on the Ishtar Gate, what was unusual about it is it had 575 bulls and dragons on it. Now, if you want to know about Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, look in the museums of the world because all over Europe they have pieces of this. And they've restored it. Guess what he put on the bricks? Lapis glazed bricks. That beautiful dark blue brick. Bronze, cedar, copper. The whole gate was the whole nation's wonderment. Everybody had to come see the gate that Nebuchadnezzar made. Powerful, beautiful. The city was laid out in the form of a square, unlike our town. <laughs> it was laid out quite well. <laughs> 14 miles on each side and of enormous magnitude. The brick wall was 56 miles long, 300 feet high, 25 feet thick, with another 75 feet behind the first wall, and the wall extended 35 feet below the ground. They sunk it down. You can't dig under it. 250 towers that were 450 feet high. 250 towers. A wide and a deep moat that encircled the city. Not only the gates, the moat. Now, I didn't look to see if there were crocodiles in it, but the Euphrates River also flowed through the middle of the city. And in it, man, this is like Venice. Ferry boats and a half mile long bridge and drawbridges closed at night through the river that passed through. Golden image of Baal. Oh, well, that's what New York chose to have. And the golden table, both weighing 50,000 pounds of solid uh, gold. When you capture, you might as well make the streets. Two golden lines, a solid gold human figure, 18 feet high. Walls, watchtowers, bridges, and drawbridges. Moats and gates and waterworks, temples and palaces. The houses inside this village were well done. They were three or four stories high. Actual multiple palaces for himself. He had a northern palace, a summer palace, and a southern palace. And they were within the walled city. The southern had the throne room. No wonder he has several entries in the seven wonders of the ancient world. He has multiple listings. The hanging gardens, the wall around the city, so thick measuring in places 56 to 70 feet across that chariots patrolled the walls 
and had chariot races on top of the city walls as they guarded the city. If that wasn't enough, there were two parallel walls around the entire city. So not just that wall, but a second wall. Nebuchadnezzar controlled men's destinies. It says that he elevated men and he humbled them. He executed them and he humiliated men. This is what Nebuchadnezzar thought about as he gazed. And as he gazed, I want you to notice something. An entire year passes without a sentence in the Bible to fill in this time gap until it picks up and says 12 months later. Just about the time the warning of the dream is completely forgotten. Don't you do this when you get a warning and 12 months go by, you think, I passed the test. It's not going to happen. The trouble has been averted. My pride must be under my feet now. This is wonderful. I must forget this stupid old dream that I had. Twelve months has passed. There was a one-year delay in the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, implying that he had made some effort to follow Daniel's recommendation. But pride was deeply rooted in him. Now, you explain to me this, but if you've lived, you understand it. It says 12 months later, but next verse in 33 says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Is this not the truth? Oh, it's been so long I've forgotten. It's been so long that I didn't think it was coming about. Twelve months later, but immediately the word was fulfilled. That's where we get, and suddenly, it'll be 100 years, and then, and suddenly. This is how God sees it. Immediately the word was fulfilled. The compassionate heart of God, he was delaying it too. Because he knew what was going to take place. Think about his first dream. Why he was thinking this part. The reason he thought this dream was forgotten, because remember, he's the head of gold in dream chapter 2. He's the great head of gold when all the others were silver and bronze and copper and wood. Each secession was going down from how important Nebuchadnezzar was. He's the great head. Back there in the first dream in Daniel 2 verse 38, God called him the golden head while everyone else was lower. But the golden head had not bowed in submission to God of Daniel. You know, the head of gold is being tested by praise. When you get praised, let me ask you, does your golden head take in the compliments? Or does it bow to the Lord and say thank you? It's grace. This is the test by praise. Even God himself complimented him. Even God himself admitted that he had grown like a tree, luxurious. But when you take it in yourself, it is a test of praise. For Solomon tells you, a man is tested by the praise that's accorded him. In your life, you'll get a certain amount of praise. Does praise add to your pride? Or does praise add to God's glory? Some people take all the praise they receive and they take it into themselves. 
It's hard not to take the compliment as being true. It's about to be you. <laughs> By his words, he says, Is not Babylon the great, which I myself have built? You can see what he's looking at. Every brick, every person, every moat, every defense, everything you can think of I've built for my residence. By the might of my power and my strength and my glory of my majesty. And when he says that, it says immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, it has been declared sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows this on whom he wishes. You know what's so unique about the Bible here? If you want an example of an open door, here it is. He had gone 12 months, but when he said those words to himself, when he said, Babylon the Great, when he said it, it says it was decreed, it came to pass. What the scripture tells us here is the exact spot he was standing when that thought went through his mind. I did this. Think of your places of pride. They're the counterfeit to your altars, your places of worship, your Ebenezer's, your places where you've laid down a monument to God and you worship. The exact spot where he was standing was noted in the Bible. He was standing on the roof on the highest point of what he had built for himself. And the prophecy is about to come to pass as he's in his palace on the roof surveying all that he had. And when his mouth spoke, when his heart said, it was that exact point in time that his mind snapped. This is what it means by idle words. This is what it means to just let your pride speak on and on to you. This is what it says. For out of the palace he went. Nebuchadnezzar was not confined to a room in the palace when his mind snapped, but was allowed to roam about. Some had hoped on the palace grounds. But it sounds like they just let him go because it says he went to the fields. It sounds like to the wilderness he was driven from mankind. The deception, the snapping of the mind. You know, controllers at some point, they'll lose their mind. You know how you can tell that he's lost his mind? Do you know how you know this old king has lost his mind? Because he becomes a vegetarian. <laughs> it's a delusion. <laughs> People start eating what cows eat. It's the snapping of their minds somehow. And at this point, they start writing in third person. For the insane cannot write about themselves. And Daniel picks up the pen to tell the story in third person. A sane person writing about an insane person. And Daniel can't make himself give more than one sentence of the tragedy that befell him. You know, they published this book. It was called My Life of Beasthood. 
<laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's book, Seven Years of Beasthood and Back. <laughs> it was the original tormented book. <laughs> My life of beasthood. <laughs> <laughs> the beastie boys. Okay, beasthood. What a name. When I became a beast. It is interesting that Nebuchadnezzar knew what happened to him. He remembered Daniel's warning. So honestly, it looks like that without any resentment towards God or Daniel, he realized that his own sin had brought this about. And at the end of seven years, the king did the only thing that he could do in his beastly state. Nebuchadnezzar repents. And I ask you this, how does an animal repent? <laughs> so we look in scripture and it says Nebuchadnezzar repented and he has claws that stick out, that have grown out. His hair is shaggy. He walks on all fours somehow. I mean, he's been out there mangy, nasty, no bath, out there with all the animals. How does he repent? I mean, we don't read that it became a talking animal like in the Bible, a talking beast. His sanity returned by simply one thing. The animal looked up, lifted eyes, the simplicity of getting things right with God. That easy, and people won't do it. And a beast looked to heaven. Through all this, he was going to learn. He couldn't learn as a man, so he had to learn as a beast. And this is where the invitation is to you, that he's saying to you, learn as a man. Learn in the position you're in. Don't have to drop to learn. Don't have to be an ugly beast. That pride is the form of insanity and the one true God that Daniel served was over his kingdom and he had to acknowledge God as Lord of even his pagan kingdom. See if you don't agree with this. Insanity is a condition in which one loses touch with reality. Pride is a condition in which one loses touch with reality. Remember when we taught on reality rather than truth? And the Lord starts showing me, in some cases, reality is a step up. Reality is a step up from being crazy, and reality is a step up from being prideful. God intervenes in this pagan king's life. He gets personal, God gets very personal, and he starts meddling. Sometimes it's hard to get people to repent. I must say God was quite creative with this. If you were going to say, how can you show a man that he must repent? Spiraling progression of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, it body and body is downwards. And often you'll see the downwards and the upwards going on inside of person at one time. Think of yourself that you've had things trying to pull you down to destroy you and something trying to lift you up to save you. There are people, I was thinking about this, who think like beasts, but they don't live with them. There are people who live with beasts, but they don't look like beasts. But this is a whole new low. He both lived, ate, and looked like a beast. <laughs> For there are many that are in these other categories, 
But Nebuchadnezzar both lived and looked like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar was the world's most powerful ruler, and this heathen king repented. We know he repented, or he wouldn't be this vulnerable in his testimony. If he had not lost his pride, he would never have admitted he lost his mind. You can tell when people repent because they're willing to tell you what happened. Surpassing greatness was added back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he was restored more than ever before. Who do we owe this to? What took place in the spiritual realm that this could transpire in Nebuchadnezzar's life, in his heart? We must regard his conversion largely as the results of how well Daniel did his job. Daniel, with his prayer, his speaking into power, his contending, I don't know that this could have happened to any other king without someone standing beside him interceding. Remember what I've told you? There are people in your life that I call them your oops people. You're the only one praying. O-O-P. Only one praying. And Daniel made Nebuchadnezzar the one he spoke into. How faithful are you in this? We must regard this conversion as not a stand-alone with Nebuchadnezzar and just God because there are others that rise and fall and never have this visitation by the Lord. But just as Nebuchadnezzar spiraled downward, closer and closer Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind go upwards to God. You know, you see the progression. He's impressed with himself. And you see the steps that he starts being impressed with Daniel's God. In chapter 1, the king has no idea about Daniel's God, but he recognizes the wisdom of life in Daniel and his three friends. And he finds that they're ten times wiser than all his guys, and he appoints them into his personal service. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with himself, and he's impressed with Daniel. And that's the reality. In chapter 2, it progresses a little further. Nebuchadnezzar learns that Daniel's God is all-wise and able to reveal the future to men. And he sees Daniel's prophetic gift as superior to all his men. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with himself, and he's impressed with Daniel's ability to tell the future. Chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar learns that Israel's God is not only all-wise, but he's all-powerful. Daniel's God is able to deliver those who trust in him. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has tried to burn them up. He has thrown them into a fiery furnace. And so an all-powerful king that has killed many people, Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with himself and the furnace and the fact they turned it up hotter. And he's impressed with Daniel's God. He is so impressed by this in chapter 3, he did something that needs to be done on earth by heathen kings. Because of these guys and the stand they made, Nebuchadnezzar outlaws blasphemy against the Hebrew God. Do you think you could live your life in such a way that heathen men said, we're going to outlaw? Nobody can blaspheme against this God. It's a sin. We're not going to allow it. In fact, it's against the law. But honestly, chapter 4 is the high point of Nebuchadnezzar's life. For he was impressed with himself. He was impressed with all he had done. And he was counting the works of his entire life. And he was surveying them and said he did well. But 
he reached an all-time low. All that happens to this king will be done for not destruction of the king, but for the mercy. The part of the dream that God gives him, just that little bitty shred of hope. How did you know that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to be destroyed and never recover? What did it say in there that gave us hope? In the dream, in verse 15, it said, cut the tree down, but leave a stump. (laughs) That's about what's left when pride's cut down. You're a stump of what you used to be. I'm a stump. He will be delivered from insanity and God will restore him. God will restore what the enemy has done to him. All the years of his insanity and craziness, the time of the consequences of his flesh, what he has done apart from God, from his self-will, that lasted through his entire life, through the seven years. And now, my friend, we start with Nebuchadnezzar's epistle to you. Old Neb has quite a testimony now. As we've said, the first and last of this chapter is written in first person. Nebuchadnezzar has the pen back in his hand. (laughs) He's able to talk and listen to the words of what he's saying to you. This is his message. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. All His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are of no account. But He does according to His will among the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can fend off His hand when he puts his finger on you, or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the honor of my kingdom. And my state counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are true, and His ways are just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar's words, a mixture of personal testimony and gratitude, for he worships God in truth now. This chapter These words are considered the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Where he did not repent or convert at the fiery furnace, or when Daniel interpreted the first dream, or the second dream, but at the end of seven years. What's amazing to me is that after seven years, that he didn't just come back to his sanity, but he was returned to his duties. Who on earth do they leave the kingship open for you to come back? (laughs) He was sought out by his counselors and his nobles. In other words, he's telling you, my mind became so strong that the wisest people and the nobles in my kingdom, the wisest of the wise, came back to me to seek out what I knew. 
my wisdom returned. And not only did my wisdom return, it returned so greatly that the best of my kingdom came. Then he says, my prosperity came back to me. What does God think about this? Can you handle it? Can you handle prosperity? Can you handle success? Can he trust you with true riches? That's not what he stripped him of. He stripped him of the fact that he took him as his own. His kingdom was also restored. His majesty and his splendor was given back and even increased. The fact that he's received back and everything he had comes back to him is very interesting. The insanity of Nebuchadnezzar for seven years is a foreshadowing of the debasement of man. It is when our pride as a whole in the world catches up with us. During the final years of this age, think about it, the seven years is very significant. What does it represent? It represents the whole wide world losing their mind. Is that happening? In our pride of how smart we are, is everybody becoming deceived? And it takes seven years to drive it out of you. The insanity, the loss of even common sense. <laughs> There's an old saying that a country receives the kind of ruler it deserves. And if the people of a nation would pray and seek God, he would install a person that was so different. But instead we get someone that thinks like we do. And he has the seven years. You know, we talked about in the first part that Daniel and his friends were like the men of Revelation. Like what we're supposed to be as an individual in regards to what's going to happen in Revelation. Like Daniel was a believer in a pagan society, in a world that was trying to oppress him. It's fun to make those lists. It's how to stand up to dictators, how to live in a pagan land, how to not compromise, how to not bow. His prayer life and his prophetic side, willing to be a martyr, but a belief that God would protect him. He didn't go underground. He didn't do it secretly, but he did it publicly and boldly. He held political offices. Daniel was an overcomer as an individual. But this chapter, it's more than an individual. Daniel 1 through 3 is about the individual, but I was looking at it, I think chapter 4 is about the world as a whole. The whole kingdom of humankind. More is humanity. And it's the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was in trouble for, that we're in trouble for today. This chapter is a picture of it. That's why Nebuchadnezzar addresses what he says as an oracle to the whole world. And just like Daniel is about to speak into those troubled times, the abomination of desolation, Nebuchadnezzar, as a pagan, being converted speaks into it first. And he tells you what I went through is what you're about to go through as a whole world. And this is what's going to happen. Does God get in the lives of people who don't believe in him? Mm-hmm. You know the thing. The atheist says to God, I don't believe in you. But God says to the atheist, I believe in you. Does God get involved in the unbeliever's life? So much information about the public side of Nebuchadnezzar. The significance of what he did. Everything that he did. I mean, the world, you can read all these encyclopedias, but nobody else tells you what Daniel's going to tell you here. No one else tells you the spiritual side. 
No one tells you the behind the scenes. No one tells you this or records it. And probably because, more or less, no one else knew this side of Nebuchadnezzar. Does God get involved? You know, I see here that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's letting you know what you're going to need. What the world as a whole is going to need. It is what got the Israelites in trouble and sent them to the furthest parts of the world. They were driven out of their, of their sacred place and they went into the wilderness. They were dispersed. The wild parts of the world. The Jews were sent to the wild Gentile peoples. They were put into captivity and just like this king was turned out to pasture, that he was not put with civilized people but he was put with the wild. It's pretty much the same when you think about it to either be in captivity or to be in the wild, untamed parts of the world. The Jews were sent into them. And then it talks about, if you think about the rise and the fall, you know, you think of the rise and the fall of empires and kingdoms of Rome, but this is the rise and the fall and the restoration of Israel. Because very few kingdoms have a rise, a fall, and a restoration. And the nation Israel rose, fell, restored. And they failed to receive the warnings of those prophets, just as Nebuchadnezzar failed to heed the warnings of the dream from Daniel. For some reason, when people are trying to warn you, you don't listen. So God warned his people of coming judgment through Moses and the prophets, and they, like Nebuchadnezzar, were deaf. And you tell me why people don't hear the warnings. Because it's the same in our life. No matter how many ways the prophet tries to tell you, and no matter how emotional he gets and how strong he gets with you, you only seem to think something's wrong with the prophet, not something wrong with you. It's this picture of what the Gentiles have done, the blasphemy, the need for repentance. They know they need God. Hearing about him, the Gentiles have heard about God. They know that God has expectations for them. They know that there'll be judgment. They see his miracles, but it doesn't take. They can't hear, and so it happens. It is the time of deception. It is just like this falling on the earth. A war against the mind, the confusion. Even America, the rise, the fall, and the restoration dropping to a level where the insanity must be driven out. To think like beasts, God's people in places of authority, the prophetic gifts flowing, that they stood their ground, there to help the heathen to get it right with God. This chapter 4 is a mirror of revelation for us. And so, in conclusion, I want you to think about this. If you've never thought about it, if I'd asked you this before tonight, would you say that, did you ever think that Nebuchadnezzar wrote scripture? <laughs> I would never have said, oh, he wrote part of the Bible. You'd go, mm, false. <laughs> but think of this. Nebuchadnezzar has written scripture. He wrote his autobiography. He wrote his worship. He wrote his vulnerability to pride. He wrote his testimony of signs and wonders. 
He uses his persuasion that he, as the most powerful man, me as owner of Amazon, me as head of Facebook, me as head of the Microsoft world, I say to you, I have fallen and I have lost my mind. I've gone to the island, but I have returned and I'm restored. And he uses whatever greatness he has as his pulpit to preach to all the people of the world to submit to the Lord. And this is his evangelistic epistle that he has written to us to make it through these next seven years. Amen.